How do you properly value catchers in fantasy baseball? And is the market discount on utility-only players real? 2020 FSWA Baseball Writer of the Year, Ryan Bloomfield, joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing great today. Getting excited for the season. Our final touches before uh, uh, our first drafts. My first draft is going to be uh, March 4th with uh, the mixed labor auction with uh, you helping on the side there. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think we're doing it together. Yeah, that's going to be the first draft. Um, position players actually started reporting this week, and it's very interesting to see the pictures of then and now, last year and this year, to see how they've improved or did not improve. Yeah. So, and to help us today on our uh, catchers and utility-only players, uh, we have a very special guest. He is the recipient of the 2020 FSWA Baseball Writer of the Year Award, from Baseball HQ, welcome to the show, Ryan Bloomfield. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing great, Ariel. Thanks for having me on, and Ruben, good to good to talk to you guys again. It's uh, it's things are getting extremely busy, which is which is good. It's a great time of year. So um, excited to talk to you all tonight, and and uh, yeah, thanks again for for having me on as a, as a repeat guest. That's always good. I didn't mess up too bad the first time, so. Yeah, our, our pleasure. And, you know, of course, we, we invited you on the show before you won the uh, you won the award and we're happy that you did. And uh, I guess it makes you all the more credible. But I mean, you, you've been having fantastic analysis for years and uh, so glad that you won the award this year. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And yeah, the winning the award was uh, honestly, I mean, obviously, it was just fantastic. Um, the really cool part about it was kind of afterwards, just hearing from everybody in either in the industry or followers on Twitter, subscribers on Baseball HQ that have been reading my stuff um, for years now. I mean, we're, we're a paywall site, so a lot of our stuff doesn't get out there. So it was just really cool to be kind of recognized and just kind of hear from everybody who uh, who I've been interacting with uh, either on Twitter or at first pitch the last few years. It's just kind of cool to see it all come together. So that was the real kind of icing on the on the cake for that it was uh it was great so can't ride yeah. can't ride high for too long though gotta gotta get back on the grind here yep no it's all about uh producing and uh hey we've got 2021 to fill so uh jump into our strategy section tonight is about catchers and utility players we're going to talk a bit about some strategy involved with both so first of all uh catchers the big thing is knowing how to value them and uh we, we talk a lot on the show there's positional scarcity, market premium, whatnot. Uh, for catchers, we know that if they were going to play in a uh, league and there was no positional format, you could pick any player, uh, you would hardly have any catchers. I think in a, if you're talking about the top 30 catchers in a two-catcher, 15-team league, only about seven of them would actually even qualify, uh, would actually not qualify, would, would, would be welcomed by any team to draft as an everyday player. So there's just, it's just a very, very weak position. So the question is, how do you account for this positional scarcity when you value catchers in, in your leagues? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, I mean, in general, I focus on category scarcity and have been the last few years more than positional scarcity, uh, scarcity but I mean, catcher is the one, um, 
you know, exception to that rule, just because the replacement level, especially in a two catcher league. And, and I think we'll talk about that is, is just so low that if you do wait on catchers in a two catcher league, um, you, you are getting some pretty bad stats across the board. So it is the one position where I do account for, for, uh, for positional scarcity. I don't technically, I mean, I mean, and so in a lot of like your standard NFBC, there's, you know, two catchers, 15 teams. So there's 30 catchers. I, I kind of use my 20th to 25th ish catcher as my quote unquote replacement level and adjust from that. Um, just cause I think I can, I feel I can do a little bit better than just, you know, using the 30th overall catcher as my, as my baseline. But, but yeah, I definitely do take that into account for the two catcher leagues just because it's, it's such a drop off, um, even after like the top 10. And then once you get into those part-time catchers near the bottom with, with pretty much no fantasy skill, it's, it's really, um, it's a, it's, it's a cesspool. So you do have to account for it in my opinion. And again, that's, it's the only position really where, where I do make that adjustment at a at a position wide um, level. How do you get that number, the twenty fifth catcher? Because uh, I'll tell everybody what what I do. Uh, I come up with something a little bit different, and it's uh, uh, sort of formulaic, or there's a rationale. How, how do you get twenty five? Is that a gut feel for w- what you don't want to pay for at all? Yeah, I mean it's a little bit it's a little bit arbitrary, but I think once you get back to like the the true replacement level of like your thirtieth overall, I just feel like I can do a little bit better, and, and we'll probably talk about streaming a little bit later. But like you can kind of stream catchers a little bit and and play platoons and matchups and things like that to to kind of squirm your way out of using that true 30th number 30 catcher as your replacement level so um i bumped that up just a little bit just because and maybe maybe i'm too overconfident in my ability to uh to to wade through the end of the catching pool but uh, that's why i bump it up just a little bit because I, i i think i can outperform what that you know true 30th number 30 catcher can be so that's that's why i bump it up just just a little bit yeah, well, for for me, I, I have two two reasons why I would want to bump it up. Um, number one is th- there's a historical finish. So you know the the reason, and, and Ryan was saying you know use the twenty fifth instead of the thirtieth. You know, technically, what you're paying for when you buy a catcher is you're not paying for a catcher's stats. If a catcher is projected to hit ten homers and bat two hundred, you're not paying for those stats. You're paying for the privilege of not buying a worse catcher or at more specifically, the privilege for not buying the last catcher, right? If you don't pay any money, if you say, I'm just going to pay $1 at the very end, draft a catcher in the very last turn, right, you can get a certain amount of statistics. When you buy any catcher, you're not paying for those statistics. You're paying for the difference between the worst catcher and that catcher statistic. That's that's where the, the whole scarcity and the whole uh, um, bumping up comes from because it's the marginal difference, not just the total stats, right? So that's why you're, you're getting more. Uh, but if you look at, um, you know, as far as projections go, uh, let's say on a Z-score basis, the worst catcher, the 30th catcher, ends at, you know, minus 7 Z-score, really bad. But if you look at the way historically catchers have ended – um, there are more waiver wire catchers that come up into the above replacement pool than go down. It's one of the few positions that do that. There are catchers that aren't drafted that actually do better and come up and are worth money in the year. So what happens is the replacement level, the bottom 30th catcher, actually goes up from what was projected. If it's a minus 7, maybe it goes to minus 6. It depends on the format, but it bumps up a little bit. I use that point 
as the replacement level for the going forward. Because that's really what you're buying towards. It's what I think is going to happen. And I take an average of the last three years and, and bump that up. It comes out to a little bit closer to about the 21st, 22nd catcher is to where you want to bump numbers up, a little bit higher. So I will have negative values for any catcher below 21 and only positive catcher, uh, positive values earlier. And one other thing, though, um, we talk a lot on this show about market premium. And it's really about the market premium. If people are paying a certain amount or picking catchers in a certain round, it's okay to do that as long as you're getting a relative bargain. I found that if you use this historical jump, you're actually going to get a market premium that is pretty neutral to zero so that your values up all the way up and down the board are going to be fairly close to what catchers are going to go on average. So for that reason, the bump is closer to about the 21st level. A little bit math there. Uh, Ruben, what, what, what are you thinking about with catchers? The problem with catchers is that they have to play, and if you have two of them, they're actually taking up spaces on your active roster. So you can pick your poison. You can spend the $23, $24, or the third or fourth round pick and get the JT Ramuto and not have to worry about it and then say, you know what, let me go cheap and go with the worst catcher because, you know what, they'll even out. That doesn't necessarily work out. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't because catchers tend to get injured, as we'll talk about later also. A lot of catchers, they only play 120 to 140 games. Is it worth it to really pay that much money on a player that's going to play maybe 20 or 30 games less than what a regular position player would play? I don't think so. I, I think I'd rather spend the money elsewhere and just go. I go cheap, cheap. Go, go, go $1 catchers because you know what? Just like you said, Ariel, there are, play, there are catchers who are not being drafted, who you can get on the waiver wire, who will actually have a better value later on. So Ryan mentioned uh, streaming, and uh, let me go to you first, Ruvain, on this, because you mentioned you want to go cheap, cheap in general. Um, that would mean that you would be willing to stream catchers. If you're buying just a dollar catcher or getting the last round catcher, if there's a catcher on the waiver wire that has perhaps a better schedule for the next week, maybe they're playing at Colorado, maybe they're uh, in, a, in, a, in a better park uh, playing a crappy team, you would pick them up and use them. Is streaming catchers a viable strategy in both one and maybe even two catcher leagues? One catcher league, 100%, because worst case scenario, you're going to get the 16th ranked catcher, which is not that bad, especially if they have a good week or you have or they have good matchups. Two catcher league, you know what? Sometimes you're going to try and get that guy who's on his way up, or you think a, or you think a catcher, like you want to get Kyle Higashioka. Why? You know he's going to play at least once a week, okay? If you, if you know he's going to play at least once a week and he does well when he plays, you know what? He's, he's, he's playing the Orioles. He's in Baltimore. Let's, let's play on that type of thing. I, I think that that's maybe more worthwhile than spending money on a catcher. Um, Ryan, w w what are your thoughts? Uh, are, are you streaming at all? I think one catcher league, it, it's a definitely a viable strategy, right? If, certainly, if, if you are picking the dollar, you should do that. Is it viable in a two-catcher league? I've done it in both, and, and yeah, definitely agree on the one catcher league, like the, the the replacement level, and especially if you wait on your catcher there, it, it's not that big of a gap, so you can definitely do it there. And two catcher leagues, it kind of depends. Like, I mean, obviously you can't stream in in a draft and hold type format, which is what I've been kind of drafting at least early on in draft season here. So in a draft and hold where I can't do fab and, and stream, I'll, I will kind of prioritize catcher a little bit more and grab two full timers and then maybe handcuff them with their backups uh, later in the draft, maybe, you know, 
35th, 40th round, whatever, basically for free. Um, but yeah, I, in two catcher leagues, I have streamed my second catcher as well. And I kind of like to do that as well. I mean, typically what I like to, to do is get a, get a, get a full timer. Um, probably I think the sweet spot that I've been in the last few years is grabbing kind of the eighth the tenth ish overall catcher you're kind of waiting um until like the 14th 15th round for that uh that pocket of value to come up which is kind of where i like um from like an opportunity cost standpoint that's where i like to kind of grab my first catcher and then i do i do stream my second catcher as well there there have been an increasingly um large amount of platoon catchers out there on teams that play the lefty righty game. So if you play, you know, in a, obviously in a daily format, you can, you can stream that even more, but even in an NFBC where you're, where you have kind of a bi-weekly or you have that midweek switch, um, you can play that lefty righty game and, and stream that second catcher. It might cost you a roster spot, which in COVID years um, and definitely last year can, can hurt you. Um, but I, one guy that, you know, just as an example was like Roberto Perez on Cleveland um, last year or two years ago. Uh, was just a really good um, platoon bat, and that was someone who I would stream and and get in on on weeks where the platoons worked in his advantage, and then stream him out. So I found even in two catcher leagues, you're able to if you if you look at those platoons, those lefty righties, not not just for like the actual splits, but really just for playing time. You're looking to to kind of grab whoever's available on the wire, um, who's actually just going to be in the lineup or play uh, for that uh, that period. So I, I I I stream in one catcher and two catcher leagues and the two catcher leagues I, I only try and do it for my second catcher because if you're trying to stream two catchers every week you're you're going to pull your hair out and you do not want to do that it's even worse than uh than, than speculating on saves so um that's generally how i do it in uh in the two catcher format yeah no i was going to make the same point that in the two catcher format I, i'm comfortable streaming one but not two to find two catchers that make any sense Every single week, very, very hard to do. One, maybe you can come up with it. Um, I do find myself, though, in drafts doing more streaming of the second catcher. But in auctions, I find that the prices are a little bit better as far as as taking catchers a little bit early on. Um, Is that something that, uh, that you've seen? Do you think that people are overpricing, underpricing catchers? In one catcher leagues, in two catcher leagues, I'll tell you off the bat, I think that people overprice the one catcher league. Uh, I think that there's a very good case to say, why draft a catcher at all? Just pick them up in the last round. Um, Do do you find that that to be true, that that catchers are sometimes undervalued or overvalued in, in two catcher leagues? Um, yeah. So yeah, to your point on one catcher leagues and punting, just, just that out of the way, Ariel is, yeah, I, I do the same thing. And actually we did a, um, uh, uh, what we call the Worf League, Pacific Northwest based league. And we drafted that on Saturday night. And I waited for my last roster spot to grab my first catcher as a one catcher league, just because there's really no, um, you know, if you wait, you don't grab one of those early guys. There's really no reason to, to, you know, spend draft capital on that if you wait. Um, so yeah, two catcher leagues, especially like, I honestly haven't done too many auctions. So like the only thing that I have is I'm an AL tout horse and that's even crazier because that's a two catcher league. It's only 12 teams, but it's AL only. And, um, you know, you get those dollar catchers and those guys barely even play. So, um, I think even in that format, I, I, I do think that a lot of guys kind of undervalue, um, the catcher spot in those even deeper leagues, because you are literally getting, 
like zero production if you're spending a buck or two on a on a on an only league second catcher and that really sets you back over the over the full season yeah no i, I think two catchers two catcher leagues people do uh, especially in an auction people people do undervalue as far as the one catcher um the reason why you shouldn't take a catcher early is because you're going to have smarter people or and i'm going to say smarter but other people in the league uh take catcher of the last round if you think about it the gap between we, we talked about it's all relative value. If you're drafting a catcher where you think they should go, but everybody else is saying screw it, I'm just going to go last round. That's a huge value difference. It, it, it's a huge round difference. Um, the the difference between your you know catcher in the one league that you're going to get at the last round and anybody but Real Muto probably is not worth that much of a gap. Right, you're not going to get that much production by getting the third best catcher in baseball than the tenth. So it's not worth it's not worth taking a shot so early, being that people are waiting to the last time. That's that's really the reason behind it. Um, uh, Ruvain, uh let's ask you first on this one. Uh, JT Realmuto, I just mentioned him, is uh, the top catcher. Now, we know there's an injury uh, issue with him. Maybe you can talk about that. Uh, but the question is, you know, his high, high he has a high price tag. Is it worth spending on it, even if it's, you know, he's a legitimate good player? He obviously is the player of the position that is most worth to take. But is he drafting too high? Is it also worth the risk? Because let's say he gets injured in a two-catcher, 15-team league, you're dropping from Real Muto to nobody, and that money is out the window, and it's a crazy value loss. So is Real Muto too risky? Is his price too high, and what is his injury status? Well, his injury status is that he did have a fracture in his thumb. They're going to supposedly have, he's going to be in a brace for about two weeks. And then hopefully he said he should be ready for opening day, which is not out of the realm of possibility because it is still only February. So I'm not too concerned about that. As for the risk of where you, where people are taking Real Muto, he's going in the third round, fourth round, that, that range right now. Other players who are going that range, Jose Abreu, Whit Merrifield, Rafael Devers, wouldn't you want to spend more capital on those guys who play close to 150 plus games every year as opposed to a catcher who I mentioned before may not pay, play that many in um, games. Plus you have the injury risk. And remember, JT Rumuto was injured last year. He's getting up in age, which is also one of the reasons why I didn't want the Mets to get him. Because he is getting up in age and, he, and he, I, I'm a little nervous about these aging catchers. He, age. Big thing with catchers. Right now, Ramuto is, what, 29, 30 in that range right now? But he signed the contract for four, five, six years. He's going to have almost no value. He's going to be that second catcher already when it gets to the end of his contract. But when it comes to drafting, I, I, the risk is just way too high, and I'd rather have one of the guys I mentioned instead of taking Ramuto there. And I think people are overvaluing him for the fact that there's no NLDH this year. If there's a DH in the NL, then his off days or a good part of his off days can be spent still at bat. But he's going to lose that. And I think he's going to get um, uh, he's going to get the lion's share. But uh, I think that the amount of at bats he's going to lose is really going to knock him out of being worth a third, fourth rounder. I just don't see the value. And I think it's really risky. If he goes kablooey, there's nobody to pick up. Right, if 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 uh, an outfielder, a first baseman, you know, goes kablooey, you pick somebody off the waiver wire. They're going to get a higher percentage of the statistics than Real Muto going to the floor. Of course, it also means that why Real Muto is so valuable is because he is much better than the rest. But the risk, of course, is greater, and I, I don't like that trade-off. Do you agree, Ryan? 
Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, with Real Muto, and the, the DH is a great point, because, yeah, Real Muto played eight games, eight out of 47 games last year, uh, as I say played in air quotes, but I mean, he was the DH in eight out of 47 games. So that's no longer, obviously, an option um, for this season, I think. <laughs> we are pretty close, but it sounds like the NLDH is, is not going to happen. The, the other thing with Real Muto that... Um, that I do think that we haven't talked about is, I mean, is the speed and that has, you know, propelled his value. He's one of the few catchers that runs and really runs successfully. He, he's always had a really good stolen base rate, but um, to kind of what Ruven was saying, like, yeah, once you start to get over 30, like uh, speed's one of the first things, especially behind the dish uh, that starts to wane. So um, I'm not sure if the if the stolen base upside is there anymore. I mean, he, he only he only did get more than more than 10 bags just once in his career, but he's had eight, nine um, as recently as 2019. So you are getting that five category production with pretty good playing time. But I, I don't think you can bank on that um, as a 30 year old catcher starting to kind of go into that decline phase and then you tack on the NLDH on top of that and it's a it's a tough um it's a it's a it's a tough pick for me in the third round um that said there are a lot of people really smart people who who really like JT Rumuto and have benefited from his production in the last few years and if I'm kind of reading between the lines of what Ruven said is if you were on JT Rumuto in the third round before the injury his ADP I've seen him go down in the fifth or sixth round um and it sounds like the injury won't hopefully won't affect his uh um his 2021 season if he's you know if we take him at his word and he's back by opening day so if you do subscribe to the Riamuto theory there is a case to be made that you are getting a round or two discount based on the injury news so that, that that'll be interesting to see how it plays out but uh but as of now no in the third round it's a little bit too much for me even uh yeah with the injury yeah I mean Riamuto's stock has been so on the rise since 2015 I'll read you his roto values in 15 team 5 by 5 format Twelve dollars, eighteen, nineteen, twenty-five, twenty-seven, twenty-nine. The train just keeps going up and up, uh, and I think people get caught up and they sort of see it still zooming. But you know, at any point it can crash. He is thirty. We uh, don't expect it to crash, and I, I would not, I would not draft him as if to crash. But uh, that's not to say that he is a little bit too overvalued. The one interesting thing I also want to point out is that his intra-projectional standard deviation, which means his category risk or his profile risk, I mean how different his five by five category components are different from each other, is the lowest risk in all of fantasy baseball. He is the most even categorically all over the place of every of any single player. Um, I like those kind of players because it's many paths to value. So if you steal a bit less, he'll probably hit another homer or another run or another RBI. Or It doesn't matter if he's dinged in any one. Any one category is not a big impact to your overall total. You're not counting on him for something more than any other category is what intra-standard uh, deviation projects, and he is the lowest. So that is a point in his favor. Great profile, uh, but risky, and uh, who the heck knows on that, and I think people are just pushing up way too much, and as Ruvain said, passing on some very bankable players elsewhere. Uh, let's switch a little bit to utility-only players, and uh, the biggest question we always get is, should you save a utility slot, not clog the utility slot with a utility-only player? Should you Do you think that players are undervalued because 
people don't want to take utility players for that reason, and therefore, because of that, the price gets depressed. So there's often perceived value in drafting utility players. And if, certainly if you've grabbed Nelson Cruz in any of the last decade of years, um, you've been pretty happy uh, every single year, and I'm sure you will be for the next 10 years until he turns 50. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Are people doing it wrong at utility? I mean, I think from a strictly like valuation standpoint, I mean, yeah, these utility guys, especially, I mean, the really good ones like your Nelson Cruz or, um, you know, Chris Davis with a K in his prime from a, from a strict valuation standpoint. I mean, yeah, those guys are being undervalued, but the, um, I mean, obviously the rub is that quote unquote clogging of the utility slot. How much is, and, and Ariel, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, how much is that, is that quantifiable? How much is that worth, um, to not have that utility spot available to you, especially, and, and I ran into this um, last year a lot because I am kind of a Nelson Cruz guy. I always kind of grab him up when I can, but in COVID years, it really did hurt more than previously because there were so many games being canceled and and contact tracing and things like that, that you really needed to scramble a lot of weeks to to field a lineup. And having someone in that utility spot, spot did for me a few weeks last year, um, you know, cause some headaches, just been not being able to move the pieces around the way that I could. Normally in non-COVID times, it's not that big of a deal. And I try and kind of, if I do go utility guy, um, I will try and build around and, and, and prioritize some of the multi-position eligible guys even more than I normally would just to kind of counteract that from a roster flexibility standpoint. But um, with, with COVID around it and, and not to get too far off, but like, I mean, I, I fully expect we're going to have some of those similar headaches, at least in the first half of 2021. Um, it, for me, was a was a bigger problem than it has been in years past, um, having that utility slot filled up. So again, interested to see, Ariel, if, if you've been able to quantify that. But I, I think it does make a difference when you're trying to uh, field a squad with so many guys and teams. Um not playing in schedules in flux like they were last year. So the exact answer is that the perceived market discount for utility players is roughly three to four dollars on average in a five by five, fifteen team mix setting. So you know, on average, if you pay for any player, you're gonna get that three to four dollar discount. And of course, you don't need a utility player. Like it in a catcher situation, that market premium it counts because. You need to get a catcher or two, so it's okay to pay it. Here, you don't even need the utility slot guy, and they're giving you a market discount. Uh, it's almost like a win-win to me. I think actually, um, and maybe I'm wrong here, that because there's there's now more multi-positional players than ever. Right? We love those multi-positional players, and there is more than ever. If you look at the second base pool, like half the pool are people that play in other positions as well. Um, if you think about it that way, um, because there's so more, many more multi-positional players, there are more opportunities to move people around. I don't think that utility clogging up or having a utility-only guy is as hurtful a, a, as usual. Because a lot of the guys who play second base anyways play elsewhere, and so you can move them around. Um, I, I, I think that the $4 market discount is too much. Uh, to me, a multi-positional player is probably about a $1. You, you should pay a dollar over his price. Uh, on the average, uh, but you're getting a lot more than that on the discount on the utility slot. So I think people are are unfair and and taking too much. Do you agree, Ruvain? 
I think it depends on the strategy coming into the draft. If you want to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to bulk up on speed. I'm going to spend all my major capital on speed guys, and you just need power guys, and you know you're going to get these utility guys at a discount, you're talking about guys who hit for power. You're talking about Jordan Alvarez. You're talking about Fernando Reyes. Jose, uh, Nelson Cruz, Jorge Soler, all these guys are big power guys. So if you need power and you want to boost up and you know you're going to have space because you have roster flexibility elsewhere and you have stolen bases elsewhere, then that's the way to go. And I, st I think they're undervalued. I think they're undervalued in the days of David Ortiz. Nobody wanted him in some of the drafts I was in. He kept dropping and dropping, and I'm saying... Why is he dropping? He hit so well. And way back in the day, Edgar Martinez, he hit for average, for power, for RBIs. He had everything, but he was DH only. And you know what? If your roster can fit it and it makes sense, then it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, I would not personally in a in a draft or auction um, say that, well— I, I just don't want the flexibility. I, I, I just uh, I, I have to have the flexibility. I can't take a utility guy. I think if the guy has a nice bargain and it would fit into your usual bargain at the price point, I see no reason to grab the player right away. Uh, I, I just don't see it. Um, yeah, you agree, Ryan? Uh, I, I, Ruben brought up a great point in that oftentimes, I've, I mean, these utility, these DHs are DHs for a reason, right? They're not the most athletic, fast guys in the world. So it does have to kind of fill your, fit your roster build, not only from a position flexibility standpoint, which I kind of talked about before, but to Ruben's point, like you probably need to build some steals, some early steals to be able to make that work um, and make those puzzle pieces fit. But uh, if you, if you play your cards correctly from that aspect, you can absolutely kind of maximize that um, market inefficiency that you were talking about ariel so uh yeah, yeah just just got to keep that in mind throughout your draft uh, from a roster construction standpoint for sure ruben an, an entry question for you um a player that only plays dh doesn't play the field is he less likely to be injured in a season or is it the same depends on the player because a lot of these dhs sometimes they're talking about older dhs they're going to break down anyway so I, I wouldn't go according to that but the, when they're in DHing, you still have to swing the bat. You still have to get on base. And if you're on first, you still have to go from first to third sometimes on singles, or they try to, and there's still a risk of injury there. No, they're not going to get injured in the field, but there's still other miscellaneous stuff. What if they have to slide into home plate and they get hurt that way? What if what if they're celebrating like Kendrick Morales did and he jumped on home plate and he, hurt and he was out for the entire year? <laughs> you know, there's so many different things that can play into that when it comes to injuries for DHs. But I think the age factor is the biggest um, okay. issue when it comes to injury. Okay, so there's no special uh, you get saved because you don't play the field from injury, you're saying? No, no I mean, okay. look at Shoei Otani. Nelson, Nelson well, Cruz last year missed well, a lot of time. Shoei Otani is, is pitcher. That, that's a little bit of a different story. He, he was still considered a DH, though. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Jordan yeah. Alvarez, he, he didn't play at all last year because he had two Stan knee injuries. Stanton. And 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 he was so and he's so young. He's 22, 23, yeah. and he's not playing because of two knee injuries and two knee yeah. surgeries. Okay. That's what All I was right. going to chime in with is it's just ironic that, yeah, a lot of these DHs are older guys start to break down, but one of the key injury questions around the DH only guys is Jordan Alvarez, who's like 23 years old. And yeah, and yeah so. I, I think it works the other way. I think it's you're a DH because you have the injury issues possibly, not that you're not going to have injury because they're going to put you a DH. It doesn't work the other way. If they, if they were uh, more mobile, then they wouldn't play DH in the first place, right? I guess that that's the way to look at it. Uh, now we we noted this at the end of our show last week, but it's worth noting again here since we're talking about utility only players. When you're doing your values and you're doing your draft, do not consider Marcel Ozuna as a utility only player. 
Yes, he might initially only be allowed to be in your utility slot, but in terms of value, he's an outfielder. He's going to gain the outfield position really, really quickly because he's going to play in the National League, and the Braves will be forced to use him, and they'll, they paid him, so they want to use him. Uh, Colin Moran's another player that uh, probably should gain third base eligibility. So when you're doing your uh, valuations, assume that they're part of their— uh, Outfield gives a small bump to Ozuna. So if you are going to get a discount for Ozuna from being the DH, my God, it's going to be even more because he's actually worth more as an outfielder. So just a little bit of tidbit of information. Um, Ryan, uh, you do this uh, really cool thing that you call a bloom board. Can you tell everybody what a bloom board is? And uh, then we'll talk about one of the bloom boards that you uh, have recently created. Yeah. So, yeah, bloom boards has kind of been my thing here the last few years. And I've always, it's kind of funny, I've always done it for my own research and in terms of writing my own columns at HQ and really my own draft prep. Um, and just recently, I mean, over the, I guess, two years ago, started putting it out on Twitter and, and branding it and that sort of thing. Uh, but basically what they are are just different types of filters from different types of data sources, from Fangraphs, from StatCast. You throw on NFPC data for the market price. You kind of have all these different um, sources of data. You can mix those together and, and put together some pretty cool lists of players, essentially, that meet certain thresholds. So I could look at, um, for example, something like a barrel rate from StatCast and throw a strikeout rate or a, a chase rate from Fangraphs and, and see who bubbles up um, for guys who don't chase but also barrel it up. And then one, one of the things that I really try and, and achieve with these bloom boards is if I have a list of 10 guys, for example, that meet a certain chase rate and barrel rate, I'll just continue with that kind of example um, where it really comes into into in, and shines is where like if I've got those 10 guys in the top five or six are guys I would normally expect like a Juan Soto a Freddie Freeman Freddie Freeman um, you know that kind of validates what I'm doing in terms of kind of the um, the 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 predictability of some of the stuff that I'm looking at but then if you then look at the bottom of that list in terms of like ADP and you get for example like a CJ Crone is a bloom boards extraordinaire someone who has similar types of skills when you look at those thresholds but's going a lot deeper in drafts those are the guys that I'm trying to kind of uncover with these types of of bloom boards and the thing that I also say a lot too is like um, it's the, it's the start of a conversation because a lot of times, I mean, filters are completely arbitrary, right? I'm, 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 I'm picking and choosing a certain threshold for a barrel rate or a strikeout rate or whatever it is. Um, so I'm just trying to kind of illuminate guys that you wouldn't normally think of as being in the same stratosphere as some of your elite players. And then you can kind of take a look in a deeper dive at like a CJ Crone who has always had the skills, um, didn't have a team until recently, but if you invested in CJ Crone early in draft season, he signs with the Rockies and, and you could be off to a, a fantastic buy with someone like that. So, um, long story short, that's what I do. Um, I put those out on Twitter. I try to put them out, um, probably, you know, once a weekday, 
Um, it's gotten a little bit waylaid this past week without uh, power here at the house, but back on the train this week. And so, yeah, just follow uh, me on Twitter at RyanBHQ or just search for this hashtag Bloomboards and you'll see everything come up. I um, I put them all just kind of the list in a, in a little image on the tweet. And then I just try and add some context to certain players that jump out to me. And it's really fun. Um, I get a lot of engagement from it. A lot of people chiming in on um, other players that show up in the list. And, and it just puts another kind of, it's another way to slice and dice the data and look at players in a different way and uh, and start that conversation. So it's something I really enjoy doing and I think has a lot of value for people following along. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, highlight, uh, here's five players. Two of them are Mike Trout and Fernando Tatis. And by the way, these three also, ah, uh, that illuminates some people. It's uh, sort of like uh, maybe, <laughs> Ruben, I'm sure you saw this, uh, where they show uh, highlights of uh, Dom Smith of the Mets swinging and Barry Bond swinging and it looks like they have the same swing. Did you see that one? I I did see it. It's very similar. They have a different build, <laughs> different batting stance, but the the follow through and the actual swing through the zone looks very very similar. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. Not a bad player to comp to for sure. Uh, exactly, exactly. I think that's the point of your bloom your bloom boards. Um, yeah. You sent uh, one of your latest uh, ones that I saw out there. Were talking about players who uh, really gained an ADP from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one, and some of them uh, caught my eye: Teoscar Hernandez, Trent Grisham, Framber Valdez, Zach Plezak. What? What? Uh, maybe you can talk about some players that caught your eye on this latest bloom board. Yeah, so the biggest thing in one of my, uh, I guess, crusades, for lack of a better word, of uh, of this draft season is is recency bias and trying to p- kind of put 2020 in perspective as a season that was pretty wild and was only, right, one-third of a season. Um, so what I tried to achieve with this one is looking at the, and, and I call it draft slot value, um, from 2020 draft to 2021 and see who are the biggest risers after just a 60 game season, um, from the NFBC ADP. And so it's, I say draft slot value because I put, um, I tried to attach auction values on on certain ADPs. So, like, for example, if someone jumps from the fourth round uh, to the third round, technically it's only one round, maybe 15 picks. That's actually a more valuable or a bigger jump than someone later in the draft from, like, the 17th round to the 14th round. So um, that's how I kind of built this list. And, and yeah, it's, it's definitely a list of interesting guys that a year ago you would not have looked at Randy Rosarina in the fourth round. You would not have looked at Framber Valdez in the sixth round or James Karinchik in the top 100. So it's those kinds of guys where it's like, a year ago, they weren't even on our fantasy radars. Now they are. Uh, should they be after just 60 games? And research has shown, and we've done a lot of this at HQ, and and, and Ron Chandler actually dubbed this extreme regression drafting. Um, regressions are game's most powerful force, and it works both ways. So odds are a lot of these draft risers from a year ago um, are going to settle and regress back down, even according to their market price. So, um, and I think especially on a 60 game season where we are, in my opinion, overweighting it a lot in terms of a lot of the analysis that I'm seeing, I think that's a, a really profitable angle to take is to kind of fade these risers in general. Now, I'm not saying every single one. And then on the flip side, um, kind of target these kind of recency bias rebound guys whose 
market prices have totally dropped after a bad 60 game season. So that's kind of the point of this, uh, this board was just comparing what we thought of these guys a year ago to, uh, to what we think of them now. Some great points from the uh, 2020 baseball writer of the year right there, Ryan Bloomfield. Um, We're talking with Ryan Bloomfield from baseball HQ. It's now time for our ATC player valuations here. And the name of the game on this show is, as you know, uh, Ryan, you are a listener of the show. Um, we don't talk about every single catcher or first baseman, but we talk about some potential bargains that ATC has highlighted. And the first one is Wilson Contreras of the Chicago Cubs. He's a guy that um, really has had a nice little career so far. His roto values in the past couple of years, 18, 11, 16, 20, as a catcher, you love that. That's consistent. His barrel rate remains high. His homer to fly ball rate was a little bit on the uh, on the low for last year, but a rebound should be back, and 20 home runs might be likely, at least high teens for him. Um, his strikeout rate is creeping up where his walk rate is going down, so I think his years of hitting 270, 280 are over. I think he's more of a 250 kind of uh, kind of guy. But what you're going to be paying for, aside from the power, is run production. He's going to hit somewhere in the middle of the lineup. Um, who knows who will be left from that Cubs lineup, but for now it's intact, more or less. Um, we're talking mid-60s, homers, and RBIs. He's a guy, if you look at the ATC projection volatility metrics, very low standard deviation of projections. So projections are in agreement here. His stats are very uh, well spread across the categories. He's got a very low intra-projectional standard deviation. Most cat, A lot of catchers do, but he has one of the lower ones as well. So we're talking about a stable guy who is not going to be a pain in any category. Value's been high all these years. Maybe even a buying opportunity because he had a down year last year. Are you interested in Wilson Contreras, Ryan? I, if I'm going to go early on a catcher, Contreras, honestly, is probably the guy. Um I, I I think he for for me he's right up there with Salvador Perez. I actually have him a little bit higher uh, than Salvador Perez, and is going three rounds later in fifteen team league. So Wilson Contreras for me um, for the reasons Ariel that you stated, kind of that consistency. He's kind of at that right kind of time in his career. Twenty nine years old, doesn't have too much wear and tear, and actually has the third most number of plate appearances um, of a catcher in the last three seasons. So Chicago plays him. They play him often, and that matters a lot in terms of, uh, of value for catchers. So if I am going to go early, I, and Wilson Contreras is going in almost the 10th round to get arguably the number two catcher, in my opinion, is is a, is a little pocket of value that I would um, take the plunge on if I'm looking to uh, to, to kind of grab the bull by the horns and catcher. So I, I'm a Contreras fan. I, I, I like I like the profile. Like you said, uh, Ariel, the, the, the strikeouts are going up a little bit, but um, but I, I, I still think he can kind of hit mid 250s, maybe 260 and 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 still has some pop. So I, I like Contreras. I like the consistency, the floor and the playing time there. Yeah, and in an OBP league, he's undeniably the second best catcher. Uh, that OBP is fantastic compared to the the batting average. Uh, Ruvain, uh, what are your thoughts on Contreras? Well, first of all, you mentioned his batting average. The last four years, listen to these batting average: two seventy six, two forty nine, 
272, 243. Doesn't that mean he's going to hit in the 270s this year? I'm not saying he will, <laughs> but, you know, the San Francisco Giants believe in the area leader thing, so you never know. Um, his home run to fly ball rate was down from his career average, but it's probably going to go back up because he increased his launch angle, and his barrels were the same in 2019 and it was 2020. His soft contact rate was the lowest of his career. He's hitting more line drives, and he's batting fourth. He's batting cleanup, so he's going to drive in a lot of runs, so this is a guy to buy. Yeah. My research has shown that the more profitable, or I should say the better return on investments for catcher, especially in an auction, come from the second-tier catchers. We're not talking about the elite Real Muto, uh, the super elite Real Muto and the elite Salvador Perez, but from catchers number three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, those actually have very good return on investments uh, I've seen over time uh, from my research. Uh, and why a lot of these uh, catchers we might mention today are of the, t- uh, the more upper echelon. Like, I'm not predicting the very, very low catchers to go. I think that it's just extracting value from where it's been a good return on investment. Um, Our second catcher today, Yasmani Grandal, and that brings us today to the Injury Guru's Trivia of the Week. So we're going to be talking about Yasmani Grandal now, and he happens to be 32 years old, and the catcher we're going to talk about after this is Travis Darno. He's also 32 years old. Grandal's actually two months older. Grandal has caught 800 games so far in his career. How many more games did he catch than Darno? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> in the range. It's going to be kind of hard. Um, I'll, I'll give you the answer. Darno has caught a total of 489 Whoa. games. That's a difference of wow. 311 wow. games. Um, now, both of these guys, um, they're completely different paths. Darno was a high prospect, traded multiple times. Uh, Grandal made his way up slowly, slowly, and 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 made it to where he where he is now. But Grandal seems to be the much more durable guy. Um, he was on pace for the same numbers last year that he was on pace for 2018. All his peripheral numbers don't show any decline yet, and he's he's batting right now according to roster resource third in a very potent lineup for me it's grandal he's the kind of guy where i the the profile is kind of vanilla especially in and i'm talking about batting average leagues only like uh, grandal could easily be a batting average suck and go below 230 and there are just a lot of guys later in the draft with a similar type of profile uh, for me than Grendahl. So um, I look at like playing a rebound card with with Mitch Garber or even Gary Sanchez, who has more power than Grendahl. And since, you know, batting average can be so volatile, um, you never know. Uh, Sanchez could out, could out hit Grendahl from bat, a batting average standpoint. So for me, I'm, I'm off of Grandall just because the, the, the low batting average, high power profile, even at catcher, you can find guys with similar types of skills going in the 13th, 15th round range in 15 team leagues. Whereas with Grandall, you are paying a, a, a pretty decent premium in the 10th round um, for someone who could really hurt you in batting average. The other thing to kind of keep an eye on is, yes, Chicago does have the DH slot open um, with Encarnacion out of town, but let's see what happens with Andrew Vaughn. I, I do think um, maybe after some service time games, Vaughn's going to be their DH. So um, Grandall heavily leans on the DH. Um, when he's off, and that's how he's able to kind of save his legs and 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 rack up playing time. But yeah, for me, it's more just there's similarly skilled catchers available later in the draft, and when I see that, I tend to always kind of go 
for those similarly skilled guys that are cheaper. And Grandal for me, is just a little bit too much uh, given the profile. All right, so I, I don't really see them as very different value-wise. They're going in the ninth round uh, within picks of each other. So to me, it's whoever is cheaper, and I'm not really even looking. Uh, in, in terms of the value, uh, Grandal, we, we're talking uh, the last couple years of Roto value, 14, 11, 19, 20, 16. So it's somebody who's producing that value. Projections are super tight on him. His interprojectional standard deviation is in the high twos. He's even got negative skew, so there's even a case that he's going to do even better. Um, unlike Contreras, Grandal walks quite a bit. Um, Contreras, I mentioned, has a high OBP, and that's why he's he's uh, uh, up there in, in uh, on-base percentage leagues. But in terms of the difference between batting average and OBP, my goodness, Grandal is 14% career walk rate. That is enormous. Um, so he has got an even bigger push in an, o- in an OBP league uh, as compared to, uh, uh, to um, Contreras. Um, the strikeout rate is also high. Uh, you don't like that. And uh, we're talking a v- we're, you're talking a much lower uh, possibility for batting average. So, yeah, the, he is a batting average liability, whereas Contreras probably is not as much. But, again, we're talking catchers, so you're going to expect it. What I like from Grandal is the run production and the power. I think that uh, there's a good possibility that Grandal beats Contreras in at least three out of the five roto categories. I think that the lineup on the south side is far better, and we're talking close to 70 runs in RBIs as opposed to mid-60s. And I think the power can even approach... 25, 30, maybe even 30. He had 28 homers back in 2019. Uh, I think it's a great lineup in Chicago. There's a lot of a lot of chances for runs and RBIs. Um, I, I, altogether, I think the package is really, really similar. So I'm I'm not even going to pick one. I think it's whoever comes cheaper. Uh, and, and as we say on this show, when you have two players of the same position or statistics around each other, it's called the hot spot. So if you are inclined to take a catcher in this round, just write Contreras slash Grandal, and you can get one of the top catchers in your league. Travis Darno, Ruvain mentioned. Uh, you go first, Ruvain, on Travis. Well, Travis Darno, like I mentioned, hasn't played more than 112 games in a season, and he did that back in 2017. He was very, very lucky last year. His Babbitt was 411, and his K rate was up. So he must have been doing something right, eating those Wheaties, doing something right. Um, but he's 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 a he's a so-so catcher. I, I'm I'm not high on him. I'm, I've never been high on him, even when he was with the Mets. Believe it or not, I've never been high on him. His ground ball rate was up. His fly ball rate was down, which is not good for a catcher. The only thing that he has going for him is that there's really no one behind them. His backup is Alex Jackson, who's not really anything right now. Now, the Braves are actually rumored into thinking about getting um, JT Ramuto during the offseason. That's because they need a second catcher, so I wouldn't be surprised if they sign a second catcher just to back up Darno, just as insurance, just like anyone else. If some, if you draft Darno, I think you should have another catcher as insurance. I feel like this is one of the catchers that uh, the Tampa Bay Rays took a look at and said, you know, we can make something of you, and they sure did. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the Atlanta backstop? Yeah, no, you guys, you guys covered him. You guys covered him really well. Um, obviously, hit three twenty last year. That that's not gonna 
that's not gonna that's not gonna stick. It's just funny how Darno was such an injury. I mean, every single season he hit the IL 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Um, the last couple years, I mean, 2019 was recovery from Tommy John and then COVID uh, last year. So he's actually kind of had the opposite path of someone who started out really injury prone and it hasn't been. But um, similar to Grandal, I mean, great lineup. I love the Atlanta lineup. And, uh, and, and so he's serviceable, but I, I still think that injury risk is there a little bit. Another guy who played seven of his 44 games at DH last year. Uh, so I kind of sound like a broken record here, but that's going to be gone from Darno. So you're not going to, um, get that same number of plate appearances on a kind of a per game basis that you were expecting to get in, in 2020. So, um, uh, a, a fine target if you want to if you kind of want to fish in that tenth eleventh round. Um, Going to give you more batting average than than Grandal, but not as much power. So um, just kind of see where that fits with the rest of your team and, and go from there. But I don't have a I don't have a major kind of different. I don't see a major difference between Grandal and uh, and Darno in, in batting average leagues. Oh, I think Darno is is uh, a little bit safer in batting average. Um, I mean, the Statcast numbers are are just fantastic with him, with the with the uh, the barrel rate and the huge exit velocity, and he is having more line drive. Look, the Braves trusted him last year, batting him clean up in the playoffs. What does that tell you? I mean, you had Frank yep. Freeman, Acuna, and they batted Darno's cleanup. Uh, I think the Braves really see something in him. Um, I think the batting average is more stable than you think. Uh, I think that, um, and, and you know what? For, there aren't that many catchers who who give you that batting average. And if you can find one of them, uh, then it's just a great pad to your batting average. You're going to do so much better in batting average than the others if you're at, if you're getting a 260 guy, whereas somebody else is rostering a 220 guy at the very end. I was just gonna say that that's absolutely right, and and like the batting average floor for catchers, there aren't many guys like that, and and those go to the guys that really can't hurt you. If at, at the very least, they're racking up plate appearances and getting hits, and obviously the counting stats, the runs, RBI that go with it. So uh, that's a great point. Yeah, and and the homers, um, I think they're super safe. I mean, he's always been a mid-teens homer guy, and now he's ha- he has this consistent. Statcast drama with with he just crushing the ball. I think I'm projecting only 18 homers on ATC. I think that's so doable. I, I would probably take the over if I knew he was gonna not get injured. Um, I, I think he is a much safer person than you think, and uh, it's a good profile to have, especially in a two catcher league. Uh, I I I think it really fits in, and it's so unique as a catcher. Uh, other than the stolen bases, I mean, this is. Yeah, cl- close to Real Muto's product productivity. I, well, not exactly. I'm making that up. Uh, but it, I, I like the the blend of the profile very nicely. It's not the typical catcher profile. Put it that way. Well, I actually I mentioned all the games that he missed. You know that can be a positive for him too because he doesn't have he's older, but he doesn't have all that wear and tear in him. So it can go it can go both. He can think of it both ways. He can think of it positively if you want to. Yeah, that's the old question, you know, do you trust somebody that's got a lot of mileage on their arm as a pitcher? Well, on one hand, they're super reliable, they've done it, but on the other hand, they've got a lot of mileage. So you should I'm trust just going to bring up that starter comparison. Like the, the classic <laughs> is Felix Hernandez, who was an old, you know, 27-year-old, and a Jacob deGrom, who, you know, that the mileage and age is completely different for those kinds of guys. And I, I, I think there is that comparison there with catchers, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, let's go to the next one. Uh, Pedro Severino of the Baltimore Orioles. This is a little bit lower down, uh, but uh, ATC shows it's a relative bargain to what uh, what you're getting. It's only going for about a $2 average auction price, and he might be a little bit worth that on a relative basis. Uh, if you do the math, uh, I have him projected as a negative a dollar, but again, we talked about that market premium for catchers. Um, what are your thoughts on Pedro Severino? Any interest, uh, Ryan? I mean, I mean, not really. I'm not excited to, you know, if I walk away from the draft table with Pedro Severino, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's nothing I'm getting excited about. The the thing that I'll, uh, that I will say though, is he is one of, from an ADP standpoint, he's one of the last usable catchers in a two catcher format. So if you're getting deep into the, starting to get towards the end game in your, in your two catcher league and, and Severino is one of the kind of the last few guys available, just know that if you don't take the plunge on someone like him, who's going just outside the top 300, um, you absolutely then are going to have to play the streaming game or kind of take a, take a law, a complete loss at the position. So Severino is one of those kind of final guys, where he's available, he's going to play for Baltimore, hits, hitting a pretty good park, and after him, it it falls off really quick to towards unusable guys. So, um, yeah, again, not excited to, to grab him, but if I need to get that second catcher and I don't want to kind of punt that spot, he's one of your last choices, and he'll be fine. I mean, we're, we're at HQ, we're projecting a 240 batting average with 14 homers. Like, that doesn't sound great, but... Uh, for a second catcher going outside the top 300, that that'll do. Um, and I don't really see much ceiling from that. But uh, again, at that point in the draft, you're just trying to get guys who are going to play every day, and Severino fits that bill. Yeah, I actually like that projection better than ATC. ATC has uh, only 11 homers, and I think I think that's low. Um, one thing that when Ruben and I were going through this uh, position, uh, player by player, uh, we thought that his playing time was light. I think that a lot of the projections that are out there are showing him in, getting at bats in the low 200s, and uh, you know we we think for our own personal rankings, we're bumping him up higher in the at-bats, which translates canning stats directly. Um, I think it's a guy who's pretty stable. He's a guy who ha- his strikeout rate's only 20% or so, which means that there is not a b- batting average floor to drop, meaning, sure, he's only at 240, but that won't drop to 210. Like, that'll stay somewhere around the area. Not a big ceiling, but you know what you're going to get with them, and that's a value as well, especially with that low catcher value. Um, good ballpark. Uh, get a somewhat decent spot in the lineup. I think it's a guy to take a good flyer on as your second catcher um, and just to give you some counting stats uh, above and beyond what the market is pricing him for. Ruben? The only thing I'd be worried about is when are the Baltimore Orioles going to bring up their top prospect, Adley Rushman? Yeah. I, that's the yeah. only thing yeah. that runs into and That's why I think people are not giving those counting stats ah, as much as at bats. Right. Um, but he had all his peripherals were the same last year as they were in 2019, and he was on pace to 15 homers and batting 250, which for the catcher at this level is not that bad. It's just going to be about him, about the playing time, and when the Orioles decide to actually make the switch. You think, Ryan, any chance that Adley Rutschman comes up midseason, end of season, late season, not at all? Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the one thing I will add is like, and, and HQ research has shown this a lot is a lot of your kind of top catcher prospects. There's just so much to pick up and learn at the position 
uh, that a lot of these guys don't take off right away. Um, like your Buster Posey's kind of the the exception to that rule when he was brought up. But uh, I think even if Rutschman gets brought up, I think it would be kind of there. I don't think they're going to throw him in the fire. Um, it would be still more of like a timeshare. So I think Severino's pretty safe from a uh, from a playing time standpoint. If Rutschman comes up, it won't be till um, probably till the second half of the season. And at that point, you're you're already getting pretty good uh, uh, playing time floor from Severino. So it, that's not really too much on my radar with him. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. Uh, and, and that's why I think that uh, the at-bats are low for whoever's projecting. Uh, most of the fan graph sites are projecting the 200. Uh, curious, uh, what does uh, HQ project for, for uh, at-bats for uh, Severino? Yeah, so we do it. We do it by we do our um, playing time projections by like percentages of the team's oh, okay. kind of total group, and so we've got him at sixty percent catcher and ten percent oh, yeah. DH. So we've got Severino actually at four hundred at bats. So oh, we're we're, they, we're oh. pretty keen on his playing time for for this year. Right. Uh, so it's even more than than ATC. So uh, I, I guess you would agree with that. At least HQ uh, numbers agree with my sentiment that uh, these numbers are a little bit low, that he'll probably get more, and that the Adley Rutschman, if he does come up, won't be the lion's share of the playing time. He'll still be the, the Pedro Severino will still be the main catcher. So that's interesting. Um, go to another situation that I think bears worth looking at. Uh, Danny Jansen and Alejandro Kirk up in Toronto. Um, I know some people are high on Danny Jansen, and there are some things, some good interprojectional volatility metrics for Danny Jansen. Um, I I don't think he's a great player. I think that uh, the Blue Jays are going for it. Kirk already came up and show up, showed up in the majors last year. Uh, even though he, he might get some more seasoning to start this year, I think he either comes up right away or takes over as the main catcher or at least gets a nice share of the playing time as we go on. Um Alejandro Kirk, we're talking a guy who was projected for a 270 batting average. We're talking probably one of the highest projections in all of the catcher position, and it's legit. Some power, too. Uh, I think Kirk is is just somebody that bat is so ready, and I don't know if they have enough room there in Toronto to get him in the DH spot, but uh, I, I think they want to bring him up. They showed last year that they were willing to bring him up. Danny Jansen, he's on the decline. Look at his batting average. 247, 207, 183. I think the time is ticking for him. He did show some promise last year. He His walk rate was 14%, um, but his strikeout rate is also ticking up. There's some good hope for him. There's some power metrics to indicate that, that he might have a bump, but then there's metrics to indicate that he's going to get on base much less. Uh, it, it's a mixed bag with him. I think he gets the first shot in Toronto, but I think it's a quick hook for Kirk. So if I'm in a draft and hold situation, if I'm in a be- uh, I'm drafting Kirk as a backup to Jansen. I think that's the way to do it for for sure. Um, in a redraft league, mixed league, regular standard league, it's hard to pick Kirk if he's not doesn't have a starting position. He's somebody I think that you have to monitor really closely for the situation um, and. If you believe in him, I guess Jansen's okay to pick up in the meantime, as long as you think you can somehow get him on the waiver wire a week or so before he comes up. Any thoughts on that, Ryan? 
Yeah, I'm actually I'm a little bit more optimistic on Jansen um, than it sounds like you are. I, I, yeah, the batting average, like yeah, career 208 hitter in 550 at bats, like that's really not good for Danny Jansen. Um, but he doesn't strike out a ton, and he hits line drive, so he's got a career 21% line drive rate, and I mean that, and an above average strikeout rate. So I, I think the ingredients are there for for a better batting average. The kind of the age old question is is his career whatever 230-ish BABIP is is that his baseline over 550 at bats or is that still a small enough sample size where um we could expect that to kind of tick up a little bit so i i, I of these two i definitely i and definitely from a playing time standpoint jansen i, I think is going to start great lineup to hit in even though he will be hitting towards the bottom of toronto's lineup but i'm actually fairly along with like severino we were just talking about i'd probably take jansen ahead of severino um at, at that top 380p i just think there's a little bit more batting average upside looking at kind of the deeper metrics that he's shown so far in his career again nothing to get like super excited about but i, I do think there's a, a decent chance that jansen's playable and that's about where he's going in the draft that's about as as good of praise as you can give some of these guys so yep fair enough uh Ruben? Well, Danny Jansen, I'm a little bit nervous and a little bit optimistic, just like both of you guys. It's a little of both. His bad pleasure is 190. I mean, that's that's very hard to do. His home run to fly bar went up. His barrels went up, but his hard hit rate went down, which, you know, it that doesn't make any sense. It's, it's either one of the it, – it's something wrong there. And with Alejandro Kirk there and the Blue Jays expected to be at least the second-best team playing in Florida this year, then you know what? Kirk is going to get the batting, is going to get more time because they want to win now. They have a team that they think they can make the playoffs, and you know what? They're going to push it, and, and Kirk, but Kirk, I'm nervous about. Kirk, he, this is the first time last year he played above high A ball, and he only had like 25 plate appearances, so it's really, really, really hard to know what you're going to get with him. Um, he's going around the 21st round, which is actually before Severino, I'd rather have Severino, which is a more of a given thing. Even Tucker Barnhart, I, I think I'd ra- I, I know what I'm getting with him. With Alejandro Kirk, who's to say you're not getting the same thing like, Dan- like Danny Jansen? Now, the Blue Jays seem to be pretty good with picking catchers. They had Darno before. And they have a lot of history of, of of nurturing and bringing up these catchers. So you want to believe in that? Then you believe in Alejandro Kirk. But I just don't believe in it. All right. Let's switch gears now to the utility-only players. I've identified three of them that you might be interested in, uh, according to ATC projections. First one is Fran Mil Reyes. Ryan, what do you think of this 25-year-old kid from Cleveland? The Franimal. Uh, I, I, I like I like the profile. It's a pretty bland one, though. So, like, he's going in the probably 10th round, just outside the top 150, it looks like. The question with Fran Mil Reyes is, is that... BABIP is that batting average going hold. Uh, Framel Reyes hit 275 last year with a pretty atrocious strikeout rate. Um, obviously has pretty pretty light tower power, uh, but no steal game uh, at all. Zero career steals in over 550 at bats. So on the plus side, it is an age 25 hitter who has hit 37 home runs as recently as 2019 um, and hit 275 last year. Like that 
you know, if that all sticks and he's on a Cleveland team where he is going to play every day in a lineup where, I mean, we like to bag on Cleveland for, you know, trading Francisco Lindor and that sort of thing. But that lineup's really not that bad. Uh, still have uh, Jose Ramirez in there, Eddie Rosario, that sort of thing. So the lineup's not bad. Um, it's just the, the it's a team construction thing. Um, Framo Reyes, and I was kind of hinting at this earlier with Grandall, those low batting average, high power guys are almost a dime a dozen. Now, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sell Fran Mill short with that because there aren't too many guys that have been able to approach 40 home runs going outside the top 150 with a passable batting average. But um, just know that that profile is um, is pretty vanilla, and you can you can get similar type of skills guys later in the draft. So. Um, that's kind of where I stand on, and we'll we'll see where that batting average goes. Uh, we're projecting at HQ two fifty seven um, and thirty four bombs from Framo Reyes over five hundred fifty at bats. So we'll we'll see what happens. I totally disagree with. Uh, I think that he's he's uh, he's a winner. Um, I don't have that that many different statistics than for ATC than you mentioned, and at that at that price, he he's going in just at the end of the tenth round. We're talking a couple rounds bargain here. We're talking about a guy who can hit 40 home runs. He had 37 just just two years ago. Um, his lifetime barrel lifetime barrel rate of 13 percent, and it's been consistent every year. I mean, there's no steals. ATC's projecting point two steals. So uh, one every one every five years. We'll five years. <laughs> yeah, five year return on that. Um, he's got a very good walk rate. The problem is his strikeout rate. But aside from that, we're talking mega run production in a, a better-than-you-think lineup, as you mentioned. He could hit 90 RBIs, 80 runs, 40 homers. This reminds me of Adam Dunn, but a much better batting average than Adam Dunn. I think that, I mean, he's shown he's a lifetime average of 263. Now, that might be high, but high 250s, I think, is more than doable. That's what I'm projecting. Um, I think this is an extraordinary player that could be a fourth round player that you're getting in the tenth round. Um, I, I, I'm I'm high on this guy. I, I I don't see any downside risk. Like, what's the risk? He hits two forty. Uh, you know, he's not he's not going to turn into Joey Gallo here. Um, I, I I'm I'm high on this guy, Ruben. I think his downside is that he hits between 25 and 35 home runs. I mean, that's that's the downside for him. Um, he The problem last year is that he, hit a, he lowered his home run to fly ball rate. His hard hit rate was down. So he those things can bounce back. Now, one guy he actually, I'm thinking about, I was looking at his stats, so I'm thinking, who else in the Cleveland Indians at that age was a little bit similar to this? Now, ATC protection, projection for Framo Reyes for his age 26 year is 35 homers, 91 RBIs, 260 average. Carlos Santana, age 26, produced 20 homers, which, you know, he increased that, 74 RBIs, and a 268 average. Cleveland knows what they're doing when they're getting these home run hitters. I have all the confidence in the world that Cleveland knew what they were doing when they traded for him, and I think he's going to have a bounce back year. Just the last thing that that that, that I, I didn't mention was, was the ground ball rate, too, with Framel Reyes. Like, a 50% ground ball rate last year. Let's see if he can—I mean, if he makes that launch angle adjustment. I always say this, and, and, and Eno Saris has said this, too, at, at First Pitch Arizona. I'd much rather have a guy who has the hard hit capability of like a Framel Reyes who can then adjust. It's easier to adjust, uh, make a launch angle change than just— uh, you know, deciding to hit the ball harder. That's a skill that you either have or you don't. So uh, let's see where that ground ball rate goes with Framo Reyes. I think a lot's yeah. going to kind of hinge on that for, for this season. 
Yeah, I, I just don't see the downside. I, I, there's more upside than downside here. Uh, and at the pick, like, uh, it, 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 well, if I told you that he's going to only hit 30 home runs, you know, with everything else, is, is he's still a bargain, right? You can do a sensitivity test. What if he hits only 28 home runs? He's probably worth then the value, right? I, I, I don't see him dropping to 22. Uh, I, I don't see much downside here. And uh, especially run production, if he bats in the middle of that lineup and stays healthy, it's going to come. Uh, two more guys, Jorge, Jorge Soler. Um, I've noticed a lot of uh, similarities between Soler and Chris with the K Davis. Um, his power indicators are as high as ever. Statcast is showing it's hitting the ball hard as ever. He walks a lot, and it's been steady. Strikeout rate has been going up, so I don't think he will hit anywhere near 260 as he has been. Um, I think we're talking a 240s player. Um, so I, you know, I think this is a guy who can fit the profile and, um, you know, similar to what you said, Ryan, I think that this is a, a very similar profile that you see the, the 85 RBI, 25, 30 Homer guy with the 250 average. That's Jorge Soler. He's not unique. And, you know, in the utility slot is, uh, a net bust. I, I, Fran Reyes, again, I have a tick higher than that because I think the average is a playable average, but at this level, Soler has just so many other people that have the same quality, the same profile. It's not unique and not that interesting. Certainly if he drops, and I think Soler in an auction to me is more likely to come to me than in a draft because maybe his auction price falls to $7, and I say, oh, okay, he's a $13 player, 7 8 bucks. That makes sense for the value. I don't see me grabbing him in a draft. Do you have thoughts on Soler? You, yeah, you covered him great. The one thing I'll add, um, and I agree, like a lot of that profile is the same. Um, the one thing I'll add is he had that oblique strain that put him on the IL in September last year. Whenever I see that, and then I'm kind of wading into Ruven's territory here with injury analysis, <laughs> I just I, I wonder was that bothering him throughout the year, and was that, and then he finally in September, Kansas City's out of it said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to go on the IL played hurt and that sort of thing. Um, you could take that and say, okay, so maybe we throw out 2020. That's a mulligan. He was playing hurt and he had the oblique injury and, and I expect to bounce back. The, the downside to that is Soler also had oblique problems in 2015 and 2017. So this is kind of a recurring theme, um, for somebody who's not young anymore, uh, 20, age 29 season. So, um, I do wonder if the down year was, you know, how much the oblique strain played into that. And if, if you think it did and you read those tea leaves and then it did there that, you know, there's definite bounce back potential because uh, yeah, like a year ago he was coming off a 48 home run, 117 RBI season. Like no one's expecting that again. But uh, if you're playing that, you know, playing hurt injury rebound card, um, that's kind of the, the case to be made for Solaire. So yeah, Ruben, I'd be interested to get your take on that with the kind of the history of oblique injuries, but how much that might've impacted him uh, last year. Well, oblique injuries tend to keep someone out anywhere between six to eight weeks on average the last couple of years. And the season last year was eight weeks. So a lot of times players will hide the injury or change their swing a little bit just so they can yep. continue to play. And I think that's what he did because he was still on pace to hit 28 home runs even with the oblique injury. My question is, and I think he's going to be completely healthy. I don't think that's going to be an issue. And I think he'll have the same power he always had. However, he's, his Babbitt last year was 317 and he batted 228. 
with a 317 Babbitt. That where that scares me. That's that's getting into Adam Dunn territory. That that's if if he get if his Babbitt goes back to his career down a couple like like 20 30 points, his batting average is going to be even lower. If he's healthy and he's able to swing normally and he's got his regular swing back, then that's fine. But otherwise, I'm very nervous with him. Yeah, 48 homers back in 2019. That's not that far ago. And you're right. If the oblique, if he was concealing. Um, maybe a 30-homer projection is light for him. And by golly, that would be, as I said, Chris Davis. He, he would hit 240, 247 and, and hit about 37, 38 homers. So uh, I think he fits that profile, which is fantastic. Um, but there, there are some others available, and I, I prefer Frandel so much more. Um, let's go to the last uh, player, Shohei Otani. Um, you know, the question is health. He's going to be pitching. If, I, if I'm the Angels, I probably would just say the hell with the pitching. You know, just just hit. You're probably more valuable. In a fantasy standpoint, he's more valuable as a uh, as a hitter. If you're in a league with weekly transactions, you are not drafting Shohei Otani as a pitcher at all. You are drafting him as a hitter only. If you are in a league with uh, daily lineup switches, then it becomes more interesting because you can use Otani for both, and the value that you get is almost added, almost adding up the two. But even better, because it's only one roster spot. Like you're getting all the pitching and all the hitting uh, from both from him, and you only have to take up one roster slot. So he's the the single biggest difference in uh, daily lineup guys versus weekly. Um, you know, it's a twenty. He's a 2015 guy, in my opinion. That's what he's been on the pace for his career. Um, he's still young. He's only 26. It's a question of health, but uh, he is going in the 17th round. And as a hitter, 2015, 15 stolen bases in the 17th round with a decent power stroke and batting average. I mean, uh, he's hit in the 280s the first two years of his career. Um, uh, <laughs> this is a value that's enormous to me. Um, uh, Ruvain, what what's his issues with health? Is uh, oh, oh, of course, I should mention though um, that uh, being that he pitches, he's not going to bat the day after, the day of, and the day before he's going to pitch. So the at bats could be hindered by that. Plus, the Angels have a DH problem. Who who's going to DH? Pujols. You got Jared Walsh. Like I I I can see him losing some at bats, but on a per at bat basis, this guy is phenomenal. Uh, Ruvain, can you talk to his injury and everything else? Well, he is healthy. He's pitching. Um, the one thing that they're concerned about right now is that his velocity is down two two miles per hour already. He may just need time to build that back up. Um, the Angels are thinking about going with a six-man rotation, which may get him more at-bats. Um, but I think where he's going right now as a hitter, he is so valuable. Five out of the six projections I saw, like you mentioned, 20 homers, 15 stolen bases. You know who does that also? Byron Buxton, and he's going, what, eight rounds earlier? I mean, it's all a matter of playing time for Otani. Just like you mentioned, where's Pujols, Jared Walsh going to play? Where He's not really going to, Otani's not going to play the outfield, he's going to DH. So there's really, you know, he either DHs or he pitches. He's probably going to DH, what, three times a day? Three times a week, I'm sorry, and pitch once a week? You know what? Those three times a day that he three times a week that he pitches, he is so valuable to you that you know what? He's worth drafting, and he can give you basically the same stats as Byron Buxton, and he won't get, probably won't get as injured as much because his injury was a pitching injury. It wasn't an injury running into a wall. It wasn't an injury, you know, uh, a broken finger or something like that. I think you can get. I think overall you can get more value as a hitter from Shohei Otani than Byron Buxton. Yeah, and, and, and that extra, uh, if they do go to a six-man rotation, at least for part of the year, that, that will help his value quite a bit. He'll get an extra uh, set of at-bats every every week. 
Um, any thoughts on Otani? He's he's so cheap, isn't he? I mean, he's a lot. He's the cheapest he's ever been. And when you look, when you kind of play the long game and the careers of some of these guys, I mean, that's when you want to buy in. Is when these guys are at the cheapest that they've ever been and get out on conversely when the price is higher their highest than it's ever been in Otani's case. Yeah. HQ were projecting 16 homers, 11 steals, 273 batting average and essentially part-time duty. And yeah, I mean, that has a ton of value. The, the, I mean, the thing is the angels are committed to either. They, you know, made a pledge to Otani that, you know, he's going to see this through and try and do the pitching thing. Um, fully agree. By the way, if you are drafting Otani, um, you are using the, the hitter version. Um, but uh, I just I get why the Angels are doing it from a from a real baseball and team construct standpoint. They need pitching a hell of a lot more than um, than they need hitting. So I can see why they're they're trying to see this through with Otani. Um, it'd be interesting because if say for example, I mean you don't want him to get hurt again, but let's say they scrap the pitching experiment in April. They just say it's not going to work out, and instead Otani, you're going to DH you know six games a week. From a fantasy standpoint, you just got well, kind of revenge what you were saying, like a Byron Buxton, even better than a Byron Buxton in the 17th round. So that's kind of what you're hedging on is um, is is the Angels giving up on Otani pitching experiment because if that happens, the price is uh, is ripe for profit given the the per game production. Um, just so frustrating to own uh, having a guy who you know at least currently is only going to play three times a week. It's really tough when you're sitting there Sunday night, Monday morning, trying to make your lineup decisions. And you see Otani obviously not pitching Sunday or not hitting Sunday, not hitting the day before day after that sort of thing. Um, It's just, it's tough to put somebody, even of his skill, who's only playing three times a week when you're sitting there Monday morning and trying to make those weekly lineup calls. So um, that's kind of the worst case with Otani. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the skill is there. If, if he gives up pitching, that's, and focuses on hitting, that's going to be a, a major boon um, where he's going in drafts, for sure. Yeah, and to the listener, the most important thing is to know the rules of your league. He might be eligible only at pitcher in your league, in which case, yep. forget it. He might be eligible only at hitter. There might be two versions of Otani, the hitter Otani and pitcher Otani. There might be one that you, you can use for each. And, of course, you know we talk a lot on this show about redraft weekly lineups, but uh, this is a case that uh, if you're in a daily lineup— um, oh, yeah, he, he's worth a lot more. He's going to be undervalued for a lot of reasons. And, of course, his ADP in that kind of league would be a lot higher as well because people realize that too. Um, we have time for one more one question, one mailbag question. Uh, Jacob Siegel uh, asks, As someone playing Roto for the first time with all my league mates having never played either before, what strategy would you suggest taking about catchers? Also, quick thoughts on Will Smith and Sean Murphy. Uh, Want to take a stab at that, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, I think we hit from like the strategy side. I think we yeah. hit pretty good in yeah. the in the yeah. in the first half. I mean, one thing that I'll just kind of wrap that part up with is, um, you know, look at the catcher pool. And, and and since the question was like it's your first year in roto specifically, the learning curve with roto is learning to balance those categories. So we, I mean, we've covered different guys like a Darno or a Wilson Contreras who give you that batting average, as opposed to like a Grandall who's not giving you that batting average. Um, Determine even in draft which type of catch fits your build the best so that you're the most balanced is what I would say from a strategy standpoint. And then kind of, yeah, listen to what we said at the top in terms of streaming, if it's one or two catcher leagues. Um, definitely thought we covered that really well. So um, 
yeah in terms of uh sean murphy or uh yeah sean murphy uh not enough experience for me yet to really dive in. I think the market's really giving Murphy a uh, you know 164 ADP for someone with 170 career at bats. I go back to that research that we've done with the learning curve for catchers at the major league level. Um, it is a tough transition, and for me, there's not enough of a track record there. Even though the projections look pretty good for Sean Murphy, I think there's some um, definite performance risk in those projections. And I think there's a there's a pretty low floor there for someone who is not and hasn't really gone through that adjustment period against major league pitching. So I, I, I'm kind of out on Sean Murphy at the at the price, uh, the park and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, uh, I think Murphy is somebody that is way too expensive in a two-catcher league for where he's going. Um, in a one-catcher league, though, I think that's the kind of guy you want to take a stab on for your last pick or maybe just go to the second-to-last round and, and take a stab on Murphy, and, and you'll be happy you did. Um, Will Smith was the other catcher. Um, I think he's expensive. I think he's he's very good. Uh, but I think he's expensive. I also think that because of no NLDH, his value takes a hit. I mean, the Dodgers were using him down the stretch as an NLDH, which is propping up his value in projections and his value going forward as perception. Um, so I, I, I think the Dodgers, I think they think that they're going to win the World Series this year anyways. Uh, so they're going to, I'm not going to say do screwy things, but they're going to just say, eh, you know, catch half. They, they don't need him to catch extra. They'd rather just have him have him fresh for the playoffs. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, he he's just too expensive and he's overvalued for his price. Great player. I mean, on a per-at-bat basis, one of the best. Uh, but I think for the counting stats, you're going to get just a little bit too expensive. Ruben? If they say, the Dodgers say that Will Smith will catch every day and be their everyday starting catcher, then he could be a number one catcher at the price he's going at right now. So you know what? I'd be willing to get those... Even in 90 games, he'll hit 20 home runs. He'll give you 20-plus home runs, 60-plus RBIs in those uh, 90 games. But you know what? If he played 120 games, 130 games, you're talking about JT Riomuto territory. So he's a guy, if you have a hunch and you think he's going to play every day, then go ahead. As for Sean Murphy, again, just like um, Ryan said, the sample size is way too small. I, I'm, I'm not ready to, to commit on him yet. Um, would I, if it was a one-catcher league and it was a 15-team league, would I spend a dollar on him? Yes. Why not? Because there are a lot worse catchers out there. But he's not on my radar as my number one catcher. Yeah. Good points. Uh, Ruvain, injury and update time. Go for it. All right. Well, since we're talking about catchers, I'll mention a bunch of catchers. We have Kurt Casale, who actually revealed this past weekend that he underwent hamate surgery in December. Um, he's experiencing no pain, and so far he should be good. Uh, Tom Murphy, also, he missed all of last year with a broken bone in his, in his foot. He's fully recovered, but his workload will be closely monitored. So Tom Murphy is the guy that a lot of people are drafting also. You have to be careful with him. And I already mentioned about JT Romuto about wearing a cast. He's actually doing some activities with the cast on. He's been able to catch, been able to hit with the cast. So you know what? I don't think Real Muto will miss any time. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. I want to thank Ryan for you for coming on the show. Um, why don't you tell everybody uh, who, uh, where we can read your stuff, where we can follow you, and all good things Ryan Bloomfield. 
Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Thanks so much guys for having me on again. Real, real big fan. I've pumped the podcast a few yeah. times on, on my social feed and really believe in what you guys are doing. So I uh, really Thank appreciate you. you having me on. Um, you can find me at Twitter at Ryan BHQ. And again, search for uh, Bloom Boards on Twitter and you'll see a bunch of my stuff come up there and I'll be posting those throughout the rest of draft season and, and, and into 2021 once we get to the regular season. Um, you can find my, my written work at Baseball HQ. And we are also doing, we've got First Pitch Florida online, unfortunately, this year. Uh, hope to get back there in person uh, next March. Uh, for first pitch Florida, but we're doing the online version in Zoom, so check that out if you're able and willing at baseballhq.com. I'm really looking forward to that the weekend of March fifth uh, through the seventh. So again, thanks again, guys. No, sure, Ruvain, why don't you plug your stuff? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out weekly, daily injury updates for teams and next guy up as well. And during the season, I also have a weekly injury article for Rotoballer. Well, my name is Ariel Cohen. You can find my work over at Fangraphs, at CBS Sportsline, at Rotoballer, and you can see my projections on all of those sites. Uh, we had a projections update over the weekend, um, so they're nice and fresh. So take a look at them. Uh, and, of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast. Follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. Once again, thank you so much to Ryan Bloomfield for being on the show today and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.